Hey, 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 closet busters and bold move makers. It is time once again for Life Hunt Closet. So I want you to gather around because it is time once again to kick down those closet doors of your life. We're here to escape our BS, explore our fears, and elevate our self-expression. I'm your host, Rick Clemens. I'm the bold move expert and that coming out guy who's going to take you to the party, the pulpit, the wake, and back to the party of living your life on closet. So come on along with me and grab hold of yourself and get ready to step out, step up, and step into facing your fears, making your bold moves, and living life without apologies. Now let's get to the show. There's nothing simple, easy, or complex either about being a human in the human race these days. But yet we tend to make things simple or easy or complex or really hard to get or no, I don't understand you. And one of those arenas is when we start to talk about gender, sexuality, and all those fun things. But what if we as humans can just be superhuman and realize this is our humanity by seeing gender without identity? And really going, well, what if they were just, they're just a person? That's what we're talking about today on Life Uncloseted. And what I just said is actually the name of the brand new book that I'm going to be sharing with you, Gender Without Identity. We have two amazing authors here with us, Anne and Ayi, who are here to talk about their book. And I'm not going to even try to say Ayi's last name. I'll let her do that. But um I'm excited because I think it's time to have some real conversations about this stuff. Not that I haven't in the past. I've had lots of different people talking about gender and identity and gender fluid and gender nonconforming and all this. And then, you know, then there's those and some of our places on the planet who are like, I don't know why we need all these pronouns. Well, it's kind of like you wouldn't know it's a tree unless somebody had told you many, many years ago as a young child. That's what that thing is, is that thing that has bushy stuff. We call it a tree. So honor the pronouns and learn why. And that's the conversation we're going to have. And so welcome Anne and Yahi to the podcast. I'm so excited to have both of you here. Thank you so much, Rick. It's really a pleasure to be here. Okay. So who took the lead on the book? Who, who was, who was the one, or did, I know you all have done some other work together, but who was the one that said gender without identity, we need to start this book. Who's going to claim ownership of that? Actually, neither of us. I mean, this is, gen- first oh, of all, really? it's, it's a it's a co-written book. This is Anne speaking, by the way, Anne Pellegrini. Yes. Um, and um, the, the other thing to say is, so it's co-written, but we didn't set out to write a book. We actually co-wrote an essay, and the essay started out with work that Avi had done, um, work that was a case study of a young child whom she'd worked with. Avi's been working with with trans and gender non-conforming children for more than 20 years. Um, I'll let her mm. talk about that, but she'd written this beautiful Oh, wait, wait, study. wait. I got to interrupt. Those people weren't around 20 years ago. This is just something that's only happened in the last 10 years, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, it's just just yesterday. It's only just yes, so there was yeah. a there was a, you know, a cult that we started that injected these children with this and bada bing, bada boom. Here we are, exactly. if you ask certain yes. people in Congress. Yeah. But anyway. This is one of the many libels against trans life is the claim yes. that trans children are a recent invention. Yep. And we know, and, and Jules Gill-Peterson, the historian, does wonderful work on this in the transgender history of the transgender child. Trans children have been around for a century, at least. And, and Jules has done this extraordinary archival work on this. But yeah, we wrote this essay. It was organized initially around a case study of Aviz, and we submitted it for a very prestigious prize. And we won the prize. It was the first time ever that the international um, 
Psychoanalytical Association had given a prize for work in gender and sexual diversity. It was a, we were really honored. And part of the um, award was that the essay would then have um, the likelihood of being published in a very prestigious analytic journal, International mm. Journal of Psychoanalysis. And we're moving through publication. We had received you know, re um, edits for revision. It had been accepted for publication twice. And at the very last minute, they refused to publish it unless we removed some sentences and our acknowledgements, acknowledgements that basically we're talking about basically the mistreatment that so many queer and trans people have received at the hands of psychoanalysis. Mm -hmm. And we were told to remove those sentences or else the article would no longer be published. And the, the short version is we refused to accede to that blackmail. Yeah. And so then we wrote this book that's the short version. It was much more complicated and much more. I'm sure it was. Painful. I mean, but. I'm sure anytime you're submitting and doing something that's a, a paper, then suddenly things start to happen. I mean, I've written a book. I'm book number mm -hmm. two is being shopped as we speak. And it's like giving birth the second time. I mean, it's like, what the hell? Uh, no, I'm saying that in a very positive way. You don't want anybody who listens yeah. to my stuff to go, oh, but it's tough. And then when you start, especially when certain pieces of it start getting quote called out that might you know you got to make that firm stance of okay if it's something that doesn't make sense great but if that's a core essence of the content and the intellectual property and everything right it's about going and being you know defensive so i i'm curious for you doing all this work that you've done why did that become a focus of your work what was the drive behind that for you because i find that yeah. really interesting even well, though it just uh, happened yesterday and, you know, we populated the planet with all these trans kids, you know, but. Um, I, I can say a little bit about this. This is Avi Sakitopoulou speaking. I'm a psychoanalyst um, and an academic working and practicing in New York City. And as Anne said, I've been working with trans kids and their families and with trans adults and uh, the queer community for uh, for many, many years, for a couple of decades now. And. Um, in, in our field, something is happening in our field, in the field of psychoanalysis and more specifically in mental health more generally, which mimics some of the things that are happening in the wider culture. So we know, for example, that in the last year, uh, there's been hundreds of bills introduced trying to suppress queer and trans life, trying to suppress um, the um, provision of healthcare and the availability of healthcare for trans children. And psychoanalysis is not outside um, this kind of like this this web is it's also captured and it's doing its its own work in proliferating these kinds of problems. Um, so we have both been working in um, in the queer community. We are ourselves members of the queer community and have felt very powerfully the suppression of ways of thinking about trans and queer existence. Yep. Um, like we have seen the suffering of people and we have seen how psychoanalysts who think mean well and think they're doing well actually end up causing a lot of harm, even as not, not all of these practices meet the kind of like meet even the, the stringent criteria of conversion therapies, right? That's like there's a lot of other varieties of working with queer and trans people that actually do a lot of damage even mm -hmm. as they don't criteria. So we wanted to give clinicians um, and also colleagues from other fields, academics, or even parents, ways to think about gender that might actually help them break free of some of the 
um, binary ways that we have to think about, that we have been thinking about gender uh, when it comes to transness, when it comes to queerness. Um, so that's, that's why we wrote this book. We wrote it to give more thought and to give more dignity and more complexity to thinking about uh, queer life. I'm so glad you shared that because I was having this conversation with a colleague, well, somebody who's in another program of mine. I coach, <clears throat> I coach professional speakers to build their speaking practices. And she happens to be a psychologist. And the first few times I was coaching her, and I'm I'm pretty open. Well, I it was like you, you're more than pretty open, Rick. You're just open. You're you're pretty, you're just out there. You don't hide from it, right? And so I'm very candid about my sexuality and who I am. And I, you know, you sometimes always kind of wonder if somebody's aligning with that or not. You're trying to figure that out, right? I happened to be working with her this last week. And we ended up having a really powerful conversation. And it was just her and I, her assistant usually is on the call with her, like taking notes and everything like that. And the more we delved into it, it's ironic that she actually said the same exact thing in, in different words that you did, that in her world as a psychologist, she's actually a little disturbed was the actual word she said, disturbed by this rampant, almost like starting to divide of like how they see gender identity and gender neutrality and all these different things. And even the LGBTQ, it's almost like, okay, we'll tolerate it. We've been tolerating it, but now we're not, which isn't surprising given the climate of, and I, I hate to say just here in the U S cause I know it's rampant across the planet, but especially what we see here with all these laws and everything that have been trying to get passed I don't find it really surprising that people look at psychologists or therapists or doctors or nurses and go, well, wait, I guess they're humans too. So some of them probably don't, don't see it this way, but because of the oaths that they have supposed to have taken, they kind of tolerate it more than just they want to. So I'm assuming that's kind of what you're, you're leaning towards is suddenly there's lots of different facets starting to show up correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that this word tolerance is really important. Um, mm -hmm. Tolerance is, is really thin. It, it, yep. stand, it stands on a very shaky moral ground. Tolerance basically often shrugs. It's like, we can't decide. There are two sides here. Mm -hmm. Actually, there are not two sides. There is no, like one, it is immoral to debate the existence of trans adults and children. They exist. Right. Right. And yep. so the idea that this this liberal move that liberals, it's liberals who often tie themselves <laughs> in knots over this. Right. Yep. Not un, and, you know, unsure how like, well, you know, are they allowed to be opposed to the presence of, you know, sort of, of work in journals that, that is transphobic? Because shouldn't you also, you know, sort of give room for ideas with which you disagree? I, so I think that liberals need to actually understand that this is um that tolerance is is just it's like the thinnest of oatmeal to offer right this is mm -hmm. not um stuff we can work with um and then there's the other problem which is that you know um this sense of well there are these extremists well there's the extreme pro-trans lobbies and then there's extreme anti-trans people so we're now going to be the tolerant middle right we're mm -hmm. we're the ones who are rational right we're the ones right. who are reasonable and so these are two different but related problems that tolerance gets us into 
doesn't advance for freedom. It does, certainly doesn't promote the flourishing of trans and queer life, which is one of our profound investments in gender without identity. If, if anything, this book was written precisely because we want to promote the flourishing of queer and trans people. And we want to do so in part by making available much more complicated stories about how we understand ourselves. Stories that are far more complicated than basically the two versions we're able to tell right now. One of them would be we're born this way as if yep. to say that we, the emergence of our, of our self-understanding is rooted in something other than nature or I've always been this way. We're worried it leaves us open to mm -hmm. um, being misunderstood. So it's either born this way or we must have been warped. Something bad must have happened to us. And we, so trauma turned us gay or trauma turned us trans. These are lousy options, right? Yes. And we also want to refuse that blackmail in our book by making this perhaps surprising claim that we think that in fact, trauma may have something to do with the acquisition, acquisition of gender, but that's for all gender, not just trans, mm -hmm. not just yep. non-binary, not just queer yep. genders. All gender may have a relationship to trauma and that doesn't invalidate that gender. Well, trauma is trauma. And that's the thing that people, you know, I remember, and I'm not a therapist or a psychologist, but I remember a few years ago when, you know, PTSD was kind of like the, the thing, right? And then suddenly it was only, well, it was only associated with big, you know, PTS things like being in, at war and all. I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> that's not the only place this exists. And I love that you just brought that up, Anne, because it is a piece of this puzzle of, okay, but it can be a contributor. I mean, I'll go there. I'm a guy who was sexually awakened. That's how I put it. Not sexually abused, sexually awakened at a very young age. However, and those who've listened to this podcast have heard me say this numerous times, that is not to call that person out. Yes, it should have ever happened. Let's just be honest about that. Okay. I'm not a, I'm not advocating pedophilia by any stretch of the imagination. However, when it was happening to me, in my little six, seven, eight-year-old head, I'm like, oh, this actually makes some sense why I feel the way I feel. Because suddenly I saw something that's like, oh, I get that, but I didn't get like, who's your girlfriend? Who's your, you know, why, oh, isn't she cute? I'm like, oh, I guess. I, of course, that's six, seven, eight years old. I'm not going to say that, right? But there is that interesting piece. So now somebody could argue like, oh, see, there's the trauma. That's what caused him to be gay. And I'm like, fuck you. No, that isn't what happened. I was already there in my lovely little developing head to some degree. So it informed me. That's how I like to say it, it informed me to some of my truth. But there was a whole long road ahead yet. Clear up till I was 36 when I finally did come out and said, this is long enough to be hiding in the closet. And I think this is the thing when we start to realize and embrace and advocate there's lots of different ways to look at these puzzles that's when i feel like tolerance might gain a little bit more than being paper thin but i heard somebody else i don't know if you all either one of you ever heard of john pavlovitz he's an author christian pastor who is very lgbtq affirming and supportive and he is constantly going after the magas and anybody who's against the lgbtq community and he goes you know what you think you're tolerant you think that's what you're supposed to be? And you say tolerance is rational? He goes, your tolerance is the most irrational thing I've ever seen. And I loved it when I heard him say that. It's like, wow, when you look at tolerance as being irrational versus rational, now we're starting to mm. pull some layers back. 
I, I really appreciate the story that you're sharing because it is unusual for people to speak openly about stories that do not line up with what has come to become the, the queer party line. We are taught it as queers and we are taught to think it as uh, kind of like if you're going to be an ally. And the, the, the story is like people are born this way and this kind of like this story, you know, so that the conservative approach is, um, well, you're only born cis and straight. And the progressive story is, no, you can be born queer and trans too. Like that too is legitimate. And that is, I think that makes zero sense because while some people may understand themselves this way and some people may have experienced themselves this way, there's also a whole slew of people, queer people, trans people, even straight people who have not always experienced themselves as being the way they are now from the beginning. Mm -hmm. Yep. And where a series of experiences may have contributed to them becoming who they are. And it is about time. This is one of our main arguments in gender without identity to move away from the notion that there is some core truth, some like inner authentic um, um, kind of like truth about the self that all you have to do is discover it. And once you discover it, you just get to live your life. Mm -hmm. it, people around you will will allow you to and not try to like convert you or suppress you. But that kind of like these kinds of experiences, um, kind of like what you what you understand your gender to be are mobile, that they can shift. They don't yep. shift in response to what other people want. They don't shift in response to what legislators or parents or teachers or therapists tell you should be happening. But, but they could shift. Um, that, that we see so much in our practices that speaks to how this notion of kind of like a solid internal interiorized identity right. makes no sense, which doesn't mean that people don't have an experience with their gender that feels like this is me or like of their sexuality. So when you were speaking about this experience that you had very early on, which you don't call abuse, even as you're obviously not advocating uh, kind of like pedophilia, when, when you were talking about this, kind of like you are speaking about kind of like what it's like to think about traumatic experience as also galvanizing something and putting something in motion, which may actually be very important to somebody. So we are trying in our book to think against this idea that trauma produces only misery, even as misery is not to be denied, but that other things can also come out of somebody treats their trauma what they do with their trauma, what cre gets created out of their trauma, such that if something arises out of trauma, that doesn't mean that it's not authentic because right. all genders and all sexualities have something to do with trauma. And in some ways, one thing that I have seen in my practice a lot is people whose identities are very variant. They're not straight, they're not cis and have early trauma become very worried that their genders or their sexualities are not, are not um, authentic, that they're not really trans or really gay because they had this early trauma. Maybe if they didn't have it, they would be straight, maybe. And it takes people a very long time to come out, to accept themselves, to live their lives and to love and be in the bodies that they need to be because they are constantly preoccupied with, did this, did this kind of like knock me off course? Um, when there is no true course to gender, like there is, it's not like we're all born to be cis and some of us deviate. Like we are, we all acquire our gender identity, including cis people.
And I think it's interesting when you talk about the cis people and how they acquire this, because I have coached so many, so many men coming out in midlife who come from a space of burying their sexuality, number one, but also that they've been in a relationship with someone, a spouse, a wife, who sex and intimacy was, well, this is what I'm supposed to do. And that's how they show up. But then as it diminishes, of course, then as soon as the guy comes out or the gal, because I've I've coached some women out of the closet too, <clears throat> suddenly it's reversed like, well, oh, this is why we haven't been doing this because you were gay or you were a lesbian. To me, there's some trauma and there's a lot of trauma and all that, but there's an interesting piece of trauma in the cis spouse who has been raised in some sort of environment where this is what sex and intimacy was supposed to be. This is what you did. Versus being raised in a spouse, a place where there could have been, you know, free love, all this sort of stuff. That's another piece of could be trauma. But both of those inform where those people operate from in their world. And this is why to suddenly just put a blanket statement down like trauma caused this. It's like you're not thinking through this in the bigger picture. There is. I think trauma has been like kind of characterized and pictured in everybody's mind like, oh, it's this thing. Yes, it is a thing, but it isn't the picture like we'd see on a, you know, here, here's a, here's an award-winning movie about trauma. And this is the only way you view trauma. There's so many other pathways and doorways. And this is what I love about what you're doing in the book is let's reveal, let's open up here. Let's look in this door and see what it looks like from this perspective. So y'all have done some amazing stuff here. That's like, it is. I mean, you're, you're, I've interviewed a lot of people. And I've interviewed a lot of sexologists and other people. I've never quite heard this being presented in this way. So, Anne, you were going to say something? Yeah, no, thank you. I mean, it's, um, I will say that it's exciting for us. I'll speak for myself here that to hear like that this is, this makes a lot of sense to you intuitively. And you also, Mm -hmm. you know, very generously share with us your own experience. Because I think that, you know, we're having this experience and talking about this book. We had some nervousness. Actually, nervousness doesn't do justice. We were worried. We were worried. And we had numerous moments when writing this book, we thought, should we, can, should we stop? Because we don't want our argument about trauma and its possible relationship to queerness and transness. And again, we're saying trauma could have a relationship to all genders, all sexualities. Yep. But in this current climate, we were really worried that basically, basically people who are trying to promote anti-trans and anti-queer agendas are going to leap on our argument about the relationship between trauma and transness, trauma and queerness, and use this, weaponize it against, again, people that we deeply care about, you know, our own community. So we, you know, we've been relieved in talking about the book to hear a kind of like, like sigh of, like uh, people are really leaning into the argument. Mm -hmm. It, It makes sense. Because it turns out a lot of us have been talking about versions of this amongst ourselves, right? Yep. Whether, you know, just in, you know, with behind closed doors, we haven't been saying it in podcasts. We've, you know, been trying to figure out, can I, I'm also, a, I teach at NYU as in addition to being an analyst, like, do you say it in a classroom? How do you do it? Like, we've been having these conversations in private. So we've been really, again, gratified and relieved to find that this is making a lot of sense to people, right? That the trauma might be a resource People do things with their trauma. Trauma, we have this picture of it, it just stops you in your tracks. You're mm-hmm. broken. You never recover. Now, yep. it, it 
may, we may never heal from trauma. And this is actually an argument Avi's developed in uh, another book she wrote this year. She's been very busy this year. Um, but we might not heal from our trauma, but we can do things with it. It doesn't stop us in our tracks. And our genders may be one of the things we do with our traumas. Well, yes, right? I mean, I think I could be a really good example of that whole argument right there. Yeah. When I mean, this came up, when this, when I, so I came out at 19, most of my listeners know this. I came out at 19, went back in the closet, hid, did my life, was never faithful throughout that whole experience. Two beautiful, wonderful daughters, you know, yes, I was a son of a bitch and broke a, a loving woman's heart, so on and so forth. I'm not excusing any of that, but I could have continued to do that and let the trauma keep me playing that game for the rest of my life, for the rest of my life. But when I realized the trauma was saying, but I showed you the way I showed you who you are. I showed you what you are to the core of the essence of your being. And by you ignoring it, you are actually killing yourself. Not literally not suicidal ideation or anything, but I was overeating. I was drinking. I was sullen back in those days. Everybody's like, you never smile. You never smile. You never smile. And I didn't. I mean, the animation I have on this podcast and now, of course, certain people are like, you still don't smile. I'm like, fuck you. I do too. <laughs> but uh, there's just those, there's those moments where that was so true to me that when I finally realized, and it was a, a beautiful experience of meeting somebody who like, okay, this, this showed me the other way too, that it didn't have to be just about sex. That gave me the, I guess the energy and the forthrightness to say, okay, I'm going to let the trauma take me forward. You know, this is such a fascinating thing to say because we have, while these are things that you end up hearing in the clinic, in the privacy of the consulting room, they are rarely in our public conversation. So I'm very grateful to you for, for sharing this with us and for speaking so openly about it because kind of like to go back to something that Anne was saying, like, you know, this story of, you know, I let the trauma take over is exactly the sort of story that the right is weaponizing. Absolutely. To, to, uh, to censor queer experience and to censor and um, take rights away from trans people. Um, and it is precisely there that we have wanted to intervene, to step in and say, like, we have really in our anxiety to say we're not broken, in our anxiety to say there's something, nothing wrong with us, we have left trauma discourse to the right. So we have had nothing to say about trauma, except to talk about the trauma of homophobia, transphobia, which of course are very real, real yeah. trauma and they have very real effects. But we had nothing to say of experiences like the sort that you've had. And mm -hmm. we have had nothing to say historically or theoretically about how the two might, might syndicate together. So uh, when Anne was saying, look like there's been versions of these discussions happening behind closed doors, certainly in the clinic, right? Yes, absolutely. Certainly between kind of like people who trust each other or like you trusting your audience and talking about it. But what we have also wanted to do in pushing back against this very stultifying, very like rigid way of understanding trauma as only causing harm um, is offer kind of like a way of thinking to show how what is the mechanism by which trauma can actually have the, the transformative effects that we claim in our book are possible. So part of what we try to do in our book is not just make the argument, 
which that in and of itself has felt very important, but to also show psychically how that happens and to propose some mechanisms that some of our colleagues can then allow themselves to, to ponder over, to consider so that they can judge for themselves whether what we're saying could make sense to them um, and make sense in their practices and whether it can help them see some patients who present with stories like yours, and you're certainly not the only one, mm-hmm. help, them see, help them see these kind of like these kinds of histories in, in more than one way as having more than one fashion of being understood. But I think that's the beauty of having these conversations is the more that this can be brought to the public conversation, to the stage, through a podcast, beyond the clinical room, right? Mm-hmm. And I never, I never intentioned that this stuff would be public conversation until one evening I was speaking to a group of students at a college in Southern California. And I had spoken this class numerous times. I was part of the PFLAG panel and I'd been there. And I happened to show up that night and I was the only member of the panel that showed up. I'm like, okay, well, I get to play the gay guy, the lesbian, the gender nonconforming, and the advocate. I get to play all four roles here tonight, right? <clears throat> but I knew the professor really well. And she goes, you can handle this. You could do a lot of stuff. And by then I'd already started my coaching practice too. I'm like, well, let's just see where we go, right? <clears throat> And I got the inevitable question, kind of like somebody who's trans will sometimes shy away from the question, justifiably so. I didn't get asked like, well, what was your name before you transitioned, right? But I got the question. So did you ever have an experience as a young child that you think contributed to you being gay? Uh Mm -hmm. And I thought really hard about that one. I thought, well, I can refuse the answer, which would be kind of like, well, let's brush this under the table. I could flippantly say, well, what do you think? And try to joke it off. And instead I decided we're going. Mm -hmm. These are college students. They're in a sex, human sexuality class. So if you've got, I basically, I thought the professor, her and I were really good friends. I thought, well, I turned to her and said, well, Sarah, this one's got some balls, doesn't he? And And she laughed and the whole class laughed. I'm like, so since you had the balls enough to ask that question, I'm going to have balls enough to answer your question. And it was really hard. But I also knew, you know what? What do I have to lose here? It's not something that's holding me back. It's just something I have not really chosen to talk about. Not because I was ashamed of it. It's just it hasn't been talked about. Right. I think it helped that I was already writing my first book. And there was that piece of the book that I was like, writing through and going, okay, how do I want positions? Right. And I had literally just written the line about, so I was sexually awakened, not sexually abused, like so many people would say. And I agree that there's sexual abuse, which is different than being sexually awakened in my book. And and I actually said the line in my book, in my book, and this is my book. So I'm going to say it the way I want to say it. Right. I will never forget at the end of that evening, the tears, Uh the quietness, And the reality that I could see, and this was a pretty big class, like 70, 80 students in this class, of you could almost see a reality of even if they hadn't had that experience, there was something for them that somebody had done that's causing them to rethink it. And it was really amazing because I was like, okay, I'm kind of onto something. I don't know that I'll always share that, but how can I begin to make that part of when I speak without it 
being the focal point, so to speak. And similar to you, like if we bring this up, does this mean they're going to run with it? Right. What? Well, of course, there's going to probably some students in that room that night that literally yeah. ran with it because they could be some very, you know, misguided, but wonderful people who are very faith based, like, see, see, they told you sort of thing. But if we don't share this and I'm, I'm speaking to our own community right now, too. Yes. If you don't, this doesn't mean everybody has to share, but if you stand there in the face of transphobia and you practice it yourself, it's time to look in the mirror because you're not doing us, any of us any justice. And anytime that's like, pick up, you know, pick a side, any of that sort of stuff. I mean, bisexuals get it all the time. I know the trans individuals get it all the time because everybody focuses on, well, okay, but how do you like to have sex? It's such not. I think I think that what you're saying, of it. it's it's like so terrific what you're saying because of course like with the important qualifier that you just kind of like kind of like made that you know of course not people do not have to they nobody has a responsibility especially minoritized individuals do not owe anybody their story and do not owe anyone an explanation. But there's also something very powerful about you describing this moment where you're trying to make a decision of, do I go with a party line? Because the fear is of where could this go? Would would people then run with it? Or do you refuse the blackmail kind of like that is implicit in that moment, which is not issued by one person. It's just issued by the discourse and of what the fear Mm -hmm. is. You refuse the blackmail and find inside yourself the fortitude and the courage to say something that is true to you, mm-hmm. which really kind of like smashes kind of like our fantasy about how do we keep queer and trans people safe? These stories have not kept us safe. You know, the story that we're born this way has actually not even worked. So what are we doing also? And this is, I really wanted to underline what you were saying, kind of like that we're speaking also to the queer community that we have accepted a certain oversimplified way of understanding ourselves and speaking to each other. And it doesn't matter if we were born this way or we became this way. Mm-hmm. What, what makes queer and trans people deserve dignity, deserve um, space, deserve rights is the fact of our humanity, not the question of like, how did we come to be the way that we are? Uh, that should not that is kind of like an ethically bankrupt uh, line of reasoning. Yeah, I mean, the reason not to discriminate against queer and trans people is not because we were born that way. It's because it's unethical. It's unjust to discriminate yeah. against queer and trans people. There's nothing wrong with being queer or trans and there's no wrong way to become queer or trans. Mm-hmm. I say that all the time that people are like, so how do I come, well, you know, what's the best way to come out of the closet? Your way, your way. Mm-hmm. Because it's the same, there's still, there's even that pressure in our community, like, okay, well, oh, okay, so here's how you do gay, or here's how you do lesbian, or here, I haven't heard a lot of people say, here's how you do bi, but, because they tend to be camps on that, too, but, you know, it's like, if we just let people be and do it their way, you know, and I, when I'm coaching somebody, it's like, well, what's what's the best way to have this conversation? I'm like, I can't tell you the best way to have the conversation, but I can tell you how you can lean into how you've had other difficult conversations. I can share with you how other people have done this, but in the moment when it finally happens for you, that's going to be the best way. And it's the same thing of starting to embrace where do we want to stand in this whole dialogue about gender identity and sexuality and all the different facets that fall into it, because there is no... 
you know, can't, there is no one point on the Kinsey scale for any of this. Let's just be honest about that. Right. But yet, because of who we are as humans, we want everything to fix and fit into a box. Even if we're part of the LGBTQ plus humans want to see and understand. And that's why I said at the very beginning, if nobody had told any of us as children that that thing with those funny things growing off of it, that have pretty color something on it, and it's kind of tall, but some are kind of shorter. If nobody had told us it was a tree, we wouldn't know it was a tree. It would just be this whatever, right? And so I think it's the similar thing, like as, as we box in everything, and this is where I get a little frustrated and I love my community, but this is where I usually will get the hate mail. If you can't embrace somebody else in our own community for just being who they are or who they've grown into, this is where you and I have a similarity. I, I believe there's a piece of us that has some innate piece of our sexuality and all this in us when we come into this world, but we grow into it too. It took me 36 years to grow into it and to really embrace it. But anybody who says this is how you have to do it, you're not, you're not helping any of us. You're, you're just closing the dialogue. You're pushing more of the stuff. You're embracing like, here, this is how we're supposed to be if we're this, this, or this in our community. And I love seeing that you're taking this to that space of, can we question some stuff that maybe we need to right now? And as a so way I, of protecting each other, that is yes. actually protective. This is not about kind of like making anybody's life more difficult. Our, our lives are made difficult and trans people lives are made difficult, not by complex stories, but by the way in which they're weaponized to hurt them and to hurt us. Mm -hmm. So what is some of the feedback? I know you, you've launched, you're in the second printing now. What's some of the feedback you're getting from colleagues, from people who've read the book that like, this is garbage? <laughs> no, that's not. But, <laughs> well, maybe, maybe some of, you know, maybe some of those in that, in your own community, you're like, ah, oh, this is, but, but what's some of the stuff that you've been really excited about, surprised by, that you've been getting from feedback from people? Well, I will say that one of the responses we're getting, and, you know, again, uh, thank you so much for talking to us about your experience. It's so important to basically kind of smash the taboo that saying someone became queer, became trans because of trauma is going to hurt trans or queer people. I mean, that's so important. And we have had the experience in some other events, including recently, where in talking about, you know, presenting this argument about the you know, that trauma can play a part in the acquisition of any gender, any sexuality, we've had people start sharing their stories with us. And again, yeah. we, we both hear this in our, you know, with in our therapy practices and in, in that private and very important protected space. Absolutely. But to have people having this conversation in public, I think that this is one of the most gratifying experiences we are having as authors, right? That here we were worried because we don't want to hurt our community. And we feel like people are just actually relieved, right, to get to tell and hear more complicated stories, because it rhymes with their own experiences. And we've gotten we've gotten the relief expressed in talks we've given. But we also get these really very heartfelt, uh, deeply personal emails of people who are too shy or too or feel too private to speak to us in public about the impact these ideas are having on them. But they're writing this kind of like extraordinarily intimate notes about how they they never thought that they were allowed to think this way. Or we hear from clinicians who say, I see this in my practice, but I felt that it would be transphobic to think this way or homophobic to think this way. 
Um, and so, so we have been so far very, um, very well received and we're very happy for that. Not, not because people like our ideas, but because we see that they resonate in, in emotional ways. And that's what matters to us the most. Well, that, that's where the connections happen. I mean, yeah. that's, you know, even <clears throat> when I have spoke on bigger stages and one of the most recent memories that I have was pre-COVID, I spoke at a large event, about 2000 people in the auditorium. <clears throat> and it was not a LGBTQ. <laughs> it kind of felt like it was an LGBTQ event by the time all the speakers spoke because probably well over half the people on the stage were a part of our community, but it was a movers, shakers, chain make, change makers, like entrepreneurial sort of talk. And I'm very, okay, you've already picked up. I'm very open about how I talk about my experiences. And I, I talked about, you know, my cheating on my spouse and, and, you know, never having been faithful and everything. <clears throat> and one of the guys came up to me that I knew who worked the event. He's like, that was really powerful. He goes, yeah, I just have to be honest with you. My wife was really pissed off when you got off the stage. And I'm like, really? Why? He goes, well, just, just that you cheated so much on your wife. And I said, well, then obviously there's something there for her. That's all I said, because I knew in that moment, something in that whole thing, there's some, something for her that's a nugget or a pebble in the shoe or something that's deep within her that she's experienced around being cheated on, whether it was in an intimate relationship or something, or she's witnessed it in her own world in that way. And then this is what I feel like is the beauty of the work we get to do as authors and speakers and, and podcasters and all this. I don't do this to grandstand. I do this to say, let me connect. Let me help you see that you're not alone. Let me show you. There's lots of different ways to look at these things. Because if I can, through this conversation today, help somebody that's listening, realize trauma is okay. And trauma can help me grow. And trauma can actually help me heal. And trauma can move me into a space that maybe I've never been able to move before. And I think the three of us have pretty much done what we came here to do. Not that yeah. it's over, but at least yeah. we've been able to give some people a way forward. I hope so. And not, not to minimize that trauma hurts, that it leaves. No, 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 no. Of course, we're not trying to do that, any of that, nor to romanticize trauma or idealize trauma, mm -hmm. but to say that the story that we've been told that trauma can only produce unhappiness and only produce stagnation is also not true. Yeah. I'm so glad I got to meet you both and to hear the story behind the story and to see what you're doing. And I love the direction. I mean, I had a feel for it before we got in here, but this conversation has helped me really understand the new doorways you're opening in so many ways. And I appreciate you both bringing it to the world and making sure that we get enlightened a little bit more as humans in our human experience. So thank you both for being part of my Life Uncloseted family and sharing yourself so brilliantly. I truly appreciate you both. Thank you for having us. Yeah, real pleasure. Thank you so much, Rick. Hey, 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 Life Uncloseted family. Another episode of Life Uncloseted has come to an end, and it is time for all of us to sashay away and go face our fears, make those bold moves, and stand up to living our life without apology. But before you do, I've got a favor to ask of you. Would you hop over to iTunes or Spotify or Podbean or wherever it is that you're listening to this and just give us a little bit of love if you like what we're doing here at Life Uncloseted. Here's what it does. It helps other people find the show. It helps other people get to know what we're all about. And you just might help change life. In fact, if you really want to change a life, 
we'd love it if you just ask a friend to take a listen and see what they think. So that's it. Love you all deeply. I'm Rick Clemens, the host of Life Uncloseted and never stop stepping out, stepping up and stepping into living your life uncloseted.